Hey, a couple of years ago, I went to uh, I went to Bali and uh, Jakarta. Actually, was where I went. And uh, prior to that, I'd actually never been on a cross-cultural uh, trip. Um, Kiwis would be insulted by that because I had been to New Zealand, but that doesn't count. Um, you can have a Kiwi cross-cultural trip in Australia, can't, can't you? Sometimes. But anyway, uh, I went over to uh, Bali and uh, Jakarta, and man, it was really. I mean, it was really interesting. I, I mean, one of the things that I found really interesting was uh, there's a lot of Australians on, the, on death row in Bali for doing drugs. So uh, I found as many of those mini little padlocks as I could to put on my, my case. And you get there and people have made a business out of wrapping bags up in glad wrap, basically, so that you go through the, uh, the customs and all that sort of stuff. And so here I was, my first big kind of cross-cultural thing, and I'm going through customs in Bali and I was with Ian Shelton from Toowoomba City Church and I said uh, um, is that it? It was just it was amazing it was actually really lax customs going out of, uh, of the airport but um, we just kind of went through it there was no dramas but what was interesting is uh, in the lead up to me going to Bali there's lots and lots of people gave me gave me warnings all right and I'm not talking about personal warnings there's just warnings everywhere so you go to the doctor and the doctor gives you a warning he says if you don't get the uh, correct injections you don't take your malaria tablets you're going to be you could get in trouble medically right so you you take heed of the warning and you go and you get your injections and uh, then people said to me oh look you don't even need to worry about the stuff you're getting the injections for the thing that's the most dangerous is uh, is dengue fever all right so you just got to make sure you take some insect repellent so I took two lots of insect repellent, all right? I thought, this would be really good. I'll stick one in my bag um, that goes under the plane, and I'll stick one in my hand luggage that's with me so I can just squirt away whenever I want because I don't want to get dengue fever. Uh, unbeknownst to me, any item that has more than 100 millilitres of uh, liquid in it goes in the bin. So uh, there you go. Heated the warning, but it did no good because I wasn't smart enough. And then uh, you get over there, and we had this guy who was looking after us. His name was Rio, and uh, he was an Indonesian. He was from Jakarta, uh, champion, champion fellow. And it was very much like, stick with me, and I'll look after you. I'll make sure you don't get ripped off. Now, we got to the night of uh, the first day that I was over there, and I was really keen to send a text message back to Australia to let Ange know, everything's sweet, we're over here, we're alive, and I'm not in jail, all right, which is a pretty good one to send when you go to Bali. But the cheapest way to do that, because they had a school phone, was not to do international roaming, but to actually buy a, uh, an Indonesian SIM card and use their carrier rates, with, which are dirt cheap. They're way cheaper than ours. So a code traveller of mine said, look, seriously, he goes, come with me and we'll get a SIM card for you. All right? Couldn't believe it. We paid $18 for a SIM card, the equivalent of $18. And the next day, our Indonesian host bought one for like $1.50 or something for everyone. <laughs> Unreal. And there was no credit included. Like 18 bucks for a SIM card in Indonesia is absolutely ridiculous. And then we went to um, this uh, forest kind of thing that had all these stone um, Komodo dragons and that kind of stuff in it. And uh, it had these, it had monkeys, all right? And I don't know if you've had anything to do with wild monkeys, but they're called wild monkeys for a reason, okay? And these monkeys, literally, they, you had to kind of walk in with a, some mini bananas, and if they didn't get what they wanted, they went wild, all right? And they had these people around the place, and you're kind of going, whoa, there's a warning there, all right? I'm staying away from these monkeys. They're psycho monkeys, right? There's people standing around this little feeding area, and the monkeys would just jump up on their shoulders, and if the monkeys just decided to, they'd just go nuts for a bit, 
on top of this person. And the person would be freaking out about it, right? But at the end of the day, the keep, keepers would come in and go, just stand still. It's like, let the monkey go nuts on you and don't do anything. It's good self-control. And then you've got the whole thing, don't you, about going overseas to somewhere like that where they say, don't drink the water out of the tap, all right? You've got to buy yourself bottled water, all right? Now, here's a little... Australian guy who's never left Australia too much gets over there. I, I mean, it, it was phenomenal. I'm, I'm, I've probably never been so thirsty in all my life, <laughs> all right? But am I going to go downtown that night in Bali for my first cross-cultural experience, cross these roads that never, ever stop running, all right? They're filled all the time to find some sort of bottle of water somewhere. Anyway, I put it off as long as I could. I felt like I had about six socks in my mouth, all right? And then in the middle of the night, and I've told some of you this before, it was the most surreal experience for me. I was rooming with a, uh, a Japanese guy I'd never met before, and literally we're in a twin share room, which was not a queen-size bed. It wasn't a double bed, right? But it was two single beds butted up against each other in the room, and he was arriving at 1 a.m. That was the most weird feeling I reckon almost I've had in my life. So I'm lying there at 1 a.m. trying to sleep, and I know that a dude's coming at 1am who I've met before, never met before. He comes from Japan. He comes in, puts his bags down and starts getting undressed and putting his pyjamas on. It was the weirdest experience I've had. See, warnings are really, really helpful, right? Especially if you, uh, if you listen to them. And in our, in our day and age, we're very much in the workplace health and safety age where there's lots and lots of warnings um, to avoid pitfalls and to avoid traps. And we've been going through uh, Hebrews at the project here for, for pretty much all of this year. We're, just so that you know, we're just going to put a good push on it in the rest uh, of this year to see how far we can get because I think we might get close to the end of Chapter 3 by, uh, by next week. <laughs> we'll just let you know about that. But anyway, I uh, had a bit of a look on the net and I found some pretty interesting uh, images uh, of warning signs. I thought these were interesting. That one was interesting. And uh, then uh, this one, barbed wire in use, and it's a trampoline on the other side. There's a bit of a warning there. And this is one I probably like the most, mostly because at the start I looked at it and I thought, what's going on? <laughs> All right. So today, we're going to look at a section out of Hebrews chapter 3, which is all about warning. All right. It's not about condemnation, it's about warning. So it's, it's about you being advised and you being clear about some trouble that could come your way. And this is, to be honest, this is what the writer of the Hebrews is, is on about all of the time, is he's always on about warning. He's saying, be careful of this. And if you've been at the last couple of messages we've had on Hebrews, it's like, be careful because your heart goes astray. And that's the thing that, that kind of gets a little bit messy first. So just be careful, look after your heart. Um, and he's, and he's just been going the whole way through saying, just be careful, be careful, be careful of this, be careful of this, focus on this, focus on Christ, he's better than this, so focus on him. So if you've got a Bible, you can open it up to Hebrews chapter 3. I'm going to read it off the screen here. I've added a couple of, uh, well, they're not inspired because they're from me, but a couple of explanatory notes as we go through this passage. Hear the warning at the start of this uh, this reading, Hebrews 3 verse 12. Because remember, uh, my old man preached and uh, he talked about the fact that we've been given a new heart, but there's a sense in which the heart 
still kind of goes astray a little bit. And it's, it's almost like the, the underlying mechanism, the underlying direction of the heart has been renewed and it's been strengthened and it heads toward God. But there's still this tendency that we can get tripped up. And this is what the uh, writer of Hebrews is, is speaking to here. He says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away or rebel against the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. And he's inferring there, isn't he? There's a day when it won't be called today anymore. It'll be too late. So be careful. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Exhort means to encourage strongly that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And you can see, if you just go back up to the top of that scripture, it's, it's almost an unbelievable thing in a negative sense for the writer of Hebrews that you would actually fall away from God. Because it's not like you're falling away from an idea. You're not falling away from a theology or a philosophy. You're actually falling away from a living God, a real person. And it's almost, you can almost hear in in the way he writes that, like this would be unbelievable that you would fall away from a living person. He's amazing. So let me rip through very quickly the process that we actually see at the start of Hebrews 3 there. Basically what happens is, in terms of our hearts, our hearts there can be a part of our heart that actually becomes a little bit evil. And we don't want to live in the light of truth, but we, there's a part of our heart that would want to live in the shadows. And we become weak and unbelieving. When we become weak and unbelieving, we lose confidence in God. This is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. And we have no reason to persevere. And we, then we actually begin to turn away and the heart becomes no longer sensitive to the word of God and it ends up becoming hardened. That's the progression that the writer of Hebrews is saying here. And he says, be careful. All right, be careful. Like this is honestly, and I would say this to you all today. I, I don't say this as a condemnation. I say to you all today, this could happen to you. You could become hardened. You could become lost. Because the writer of Hebrews would say this to you. He would say, be careful. Be very careful. And you know what he says, is he actually says the mechanism that leads to this hardening is the deceitfulness of sin. See, the weird thing about sin is it actually, it it just deceives people, you know? And the first person that it deceives, guess who that is? It's you. I've got no problem seeing my children sin. I've got no problem seeing my wife sin, all right? She's sitting up the back there smiling at me right now. She's going, I've got no problem seeing your sin either, brother, all right? I've got no problem seeing lots of people's sins. Maybe even sometimes I get to see some of your sins, you know. But the thing that is the big problem for me is I'm very, very bad at seeing my own sin. If I stood here, I used this illustration in uh, the bib counselling training that we did. I stood there with my iPhone camera and I took a photo and I asked the question, who's the only person who's not in this photo? And it's me. Because when it comes to sin and when it comes to the deceitfulness of sin, I'm the only one that ends up out of the photo most of the time. I can see everyone else, but I don't see myself that well. You see, we're actually, we've got 20-20 vision when it comes to everyone else's problems a lot of the time, don't we? But our own vision about ourselves can be very unclear. 
And I think Jesus is referring to this in uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 4 and 5, where he says, How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? Now, according to Jesus, it's very clear that I've got a problem, but I don't see it. I don't see the log. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You see, I'll just ask you this question at this point in time. Why are we so surprised when our own sin gets pointed out? When our own disobedience and our own failings get pointed out? Why are we so surprised by that? And the weird thing is that we kick into some kind of defence mechanism to defend ourselves and try to show that we haven't done anything wrong. We say that we've been misunderstood. When in reality, we actually don't want to have a close look at ourselves. Let me give you a quick rundown of uh, what I call the deception snowball. All right, here's how it works. That's very small text, but I'll explain it to you. We may not even read the scriptures. What happened in the very beginning is the devil deceived Adam and Eve. He lied to them and he tricked them, which is exactly what the devil does. Uh, Some versions of the Bible say when the devil lies, he speaks his native language. So like you speak English, he lies. All right, so that's where we started. And then what actually happened is uh, sin actually became very powerful and deceitful. And it's probably worth having a quick look at this in Romans 7, 8 to 12. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. For sin deceived me and killed me. So you get this sense from Paul in Romans that disobedience and sin actually is kind of personified. It's someone or something that's actively at work against you and plots your downfall. So the devil tricks us and then sin becomes a strong, strong power and it starts to deceive us as well. And then what actually happens is we see in Jeremiah 17, 9, which is what Dad quoted when he preached, is that our heart actually becomes deceitful. So it kind of gets in on the act. And hopefully you can get a feel that this thing's snowballing. We've actually got a big problem. There's a big problem when it comes to deception because there's a lot of forces at work. And then finally, what actually happens is uh, we see in James chapter 1 an example that we actually become self-deceivers ourselves. We have gone from being pure in the Garden of Eden to being people who not only are being deceived by the devil, not only being deceived by sin, not even just being deceived by our own hearts, but we actively work to deceive ourselves. This is really messy. And what that means is if there's anyone here today who says, I think I understand myself fully, you're actually deceived. All right? Because the nature of deception is you don't know you've been tricked. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you a quick example of this from uh, SBS Insight. It goes for a couple of minutes. This is a uh, New York Times uh, journal. And uh, there's a couple of fascinating mechanisms at work in this clip, which I'll uh, explain to you once it's over. Jackson Blair in uh, Washington, you were a New York Times reporter and in 2003 you were caught out plagiarising and making up whole sections of stories you wrote for the paper. Now, the book you've written about this begins with the words, I lied and lied and lied some more. What did you lie about? Well, I lied about everything. She's right. Those lies were lies that were told mainly to people who, you know, I, I didn't value that much. But you can find a direct connection. 
expansion in my lies, just like she said. Um, the biggest lies were in the areas that I valued the most in my life. Um, my Such work, as? family, other things like that. And there was a direct connection uh, between the size of the lie and how much, uh, you know, I didn't want to, uh, how do I put it, how I didn't want to fail to meet a certain expectation either set by someone else or myself, so. Mm. Now, you lied about a plane flight you never took, about sleeping in a car that you never rented a car, a landmark on a highway you'd never been I lied about everything. Isn't that interesting? So he starts out wanting, uh, I mean obviously from his own admission his God is the opinions of other people. So he starts out building up this uh, web of deceit so he can trick everyone else into thinking he's someone that he's not. And then the amazing mechanism is that he starts to believe his own deceit. And he actually thinks that he's what he's made up. I'm uh, doing some, uh, some study at the moment. Um, uh, and the subject I'm doing is called Theology and Secular Psychology. So on the first day of the recent holidays, I spent most of the day reading about 120 pages of Sigmund Freud and what he actually thinks is wrong with people, right? And uh, I felt like I had something wrong with me by the end of it, right? Because it kind of sends your head into a bit of a twist. But uh, this is Sigmund Freud here. And uh, Sigmund Freud's probably the father of... Uh, modern-day psychiatry and psychology, even though a lot of people have distanced themselves from Freud, he uh, proposed that people have... Uh, well, he had a theory that was far deeper than the current theories that are kicking around in our society at the moment. So he actually said there's something inside of people that's subconscious, that they, they're not aware of, that's called the id. All right? And you may have heard of the id before. And what the id is, is it's all the messy, bad stuff where we actually want pleasure and we want power. And the deal is that every now and then, even though we don't know about that id, that deep down id, what happens is some, some lust or, or, or drive for pleasure and power actually kind of sneaks out of the id, right? And that actually causes a problem because uh, he also talks about the superego. And the superego is the, the us that we desperately want to be, even though we're not necessarily that person. And that's the person that we see ourselves as. And there's a big problem, right? Because the id fires out this stuff about... Uh, the, uh, the lust for pleasure and power, and it conflicts with our idea of who we are. And so what he actually said, and I think he uh, got onto something that's very biblical, and I'm going to show you that in a minute, is what he actually said is human beings end up with a conflict between what they are and what they want to be 
And to deal with that conflict, what they actually do is they set up all these self-defense mechanisms in the middle. And what the self-defense mechanisms are is that they're mechanisms to actually suppress the bad stuff in me so that I don't have to look at that so that I'll be free to be the superego that I would love to be. Does that make sense? So what's really interesting about this is when you get into uh, this part of Freud stuff, what it really is is it's just out-and-out self-deception. And that's really what he's saying. He's saying human beings don't like the nasty stuff that comes up, so they cover it over. They paper mache it over with something else so they don't have to look at it and they don't have to deal with it, which is just out-and-out self-deception. It's really interesting. So what I'm going to show you is I'm just going to show you really quickly three self-defense mechanisms that Freud came up with, and you'll see how... Uh, well, at the project here, we've talked about... Uh, General revelation and special revelation. Special revelation is the Bible, but we think that you can actually get a whole bunch of truth about God from general revelation, which is observation and investigation. Even though, even though it may be a little skewed, and Freud actually got pretty close to some good stuff. Here we go. Here's example number one. Freud said this. He said that to suppress the bad stuff, people have a tendency to retreat into fantasy in order to resolve inner and outer conflicts. You ever seen anyone do that? Well, biblically, this would be how we would understand it. People fantasize rather than face their problems biblically. Fantasy covers failed hopes, laziness, unrealistic ideals of success, unforgiven hurts and loneliness. A lonely single woman with a boring job may read romance novels, watch soap operas and daydream about being glamorous, successful and beloved. Now, it's an interesting thing, like... Uh, I think Freud's onto something. I think Freud's onto something that's, uh, I think, quite biblical. I mean, there's sometimes... One thing I've been thinking about over the last six months is uh, daydreaming can actually tell us a lot about uh, what we want or what we long for. And I think in daydreaming, we can uh, end off in some fantasy land about us being a hero or something. Um, I've certainly done that lots of times, especially when I was playing the drums. I just... I would daydream off and think I want to be playing the drums in front of 50,000 people and I want them all to be loving me you know and it took me away from where I was which wasn't that all right? just in case you're wondering <laughs> here's example number two Freud said this he said there's a thing called displacement that's where that's a defense mechanism that shifts sexual or aggressive impulses to a more acceptable or less threatening target Redirecting emotion to a safer outlet, separation of emotion from its real object and redirection of the intense emotion towards someone or something that is less offensive or threatening in order to avoid dealing directly with what is frightening or threatening. For example, a mother may yell at her child because she's angry with her husband. That's displacement. All right? Does that ever happen? Well, biblically, absolutely. People scapegoat. They blame and they attack innocent, helpless or even guilty parties rather than face their problems. A man yells at his wife, kids and dog after a hard day at work, throws an ashtray through the TV when his team loses, grumbles and rages at minor injustices rather than deal with the pride that drives him. It's true, isn't it? I mean, I think Freud's onto something. Example three. Here's another uh, self-defense mechanism from Freud. Denial. Refusal to accept external reality because it is too threatening. Arguing against an anxiety-provoking stimulus by stating it doesn't exist. Resolution of emotional conflict and reduction of anxiety by refusing to perceive or consciously acknowledge the more unpleasant aspects of eternal reality. Have you ever met anyone like this? They're just in denial. 
All right? You can see their lies. You can see the stuff they've been caught in. You can see the trouble and you talk to them about it. They go, it's not a problem, really. It isn't. It's just not. Well, biblically, the way we see this is that people deny and avoid reality to save face or hide from consciousness of guilt. A mother excuses her son's drunkenness and trouble with the law by saying he's a good boy. He just got in with the wrong crowd. And we say things like this to deny the truth and to avoid having to face up to the truth. I'm going to show you another quick clip. This is from the ABC News. I don't know whether you heard about Conrad Black, but he was a very, very wealthy American. And uh, he uh, ended up in a very messy place. This uh, a news clip should uh, explain that. see that and I mean he thought the normal rules didn't apply to him he ended up in a place that was totally deceived really quite interesting what I want to do now is I want to uh, fly through uh, a little bit um, of a street level version of uh, ways that we uh, deceive ourselves and sometimes it actually uh, is the way that we enable other people to deceive themselves as well and uh, we'll get to that as we go here's some typical examples people cover failures with other successes all right. They do something wrong, they get angry maybe, and then they go, no, no, well, I'm actually a really, really good drummer, or I, I really sacrificed for that person the other day. And it's almost like if I can find something that I've, that I've done well, I can cover over the, the failure without having to look at it and deal with the failure. People rationalise their behaviour. They make excuses and shift the blame to put themselves in the best light. It's okay to be bitter because my husband's an alcoholic. It was a bad day. My boss didn't treat me very well, so it's okay for me to do that. 
And that becomes some kind of a, a mechanism, a self-deceit mechanism where I don't have to face up to my stuff. People use euphemisms about themselves and others to avoid guilt or any attribution of responsibility. I'm just irritated, not angry. Do you ever use those? I mean, I'm not doing this to... Uh, the purpose of this is not to condemn you guys in a sense. It's like God would have you come and, and to live in the light. And he knows the best place for you to live is a place where he gets to look at all of you, you look at all of you, and he changes you, and he redeems you, and he would call you to walk in the light and not deceive yourself. I just had a few drinks. He acts that way because he has low self-esteem. And it's almost like there's a little excuse, there's a relabeling going on, and people don't have to look at the real stuff that's going on. People compare themselves to others to look good and to justify themselves. Isn't that true? I mean, seriously, thank God that Hitler lived. All right? Isn't it true? We're all good. Everyone's off the hook because I'm not as bad as that guy. And it becomes this mechanism where I don't actually have to look at my own stuff. People blame others for making them the way that they did. If only they would treat me with respect, I wouldn't get angry. It's only human to get angry. It's their fault. They did it. We change the subject or we crack jokes if an awkward or threatening subject arises. Have you ever done that? Something maybe where you've just got to be really honest and all of a sudden, whoa, man, I've got to get out of this, so let's just change the subject. Let's talk about ironing. <laughs> all right? Ironing has never been so interesting. We monopolise conversation. We fill silences to keep others at bay and to keep from feeling like failures. We run from problems by watching TV, by drinking, smoking, promiscuity, workaholism and compulsive eating. Isn't that true? We mock or put in a box those whose opinions or problems threaten our own commitments and behaviour. That's a big one. You know, I mean, I, I remember seeing a message by um, Mark Driscoll where he talked about how we have a, a habit of demonising people, deifying some people and demonising other people. So the good people, you, you talk them up, and the bad people, you can put them in a box and label them. And it means you don't have to listen to anything they say. And to be honest, for me, before I did this subject, it's theology and secular psychology, I was a little bit like that. I thought, let's put all these secularists in a box because I'm not, I don't think they've got anything good to say. But it turns out Freud had something good to say. All right? And so we've just got to redeem it and actually bring it into biblical truth and it's actually something, something really good. We mock or put it, uh, sorry, we get defensive, uh, accusatory, testy or talk loudly or try to bully others to defend ourselves and to make a show of competency. We overdo penance by saying, poor me. I'm so horrible, I'm such a failure. And it's interesting, I mean, I would say that from my own life. There's been lots of times in my own life where I've become over-obsessed with my own failure to the point where I actually was obsessed with myself and I didn't deal with my failure and I didn't deal with what the problem was. And it becomes some kind of insulation that means I don't actually have to deal with my stuff. We minimise the seriousness of problems. It's nothing or the difficulty of change, I promise I'll never do it again. You ever said that? You fail at something, it's the 55,726th time you've done it, and you go, I'm not going to do it again. You just go, well, it's just kind of paper mache over the top of the thing. We lie outright to look good and to avoid looking bad. Oh, I've got to tell you this story. I'll always, I'll always tell you about my shame. There was a, um, well, most of the time, there was a uh, pastor of TCC, this is years ago, like this is probably, 
I reckon it'd be 12 or 13 years ago, all right? And um, he, he came out to the school here when I was working here and he actually, uh, he said to me, um, he goes, oh, I've got this CD for you to listen to, right? Because he knew I was, played the drums. And so he gave me this CD and, uh, for me to listen to, right? And now the next time I saw him, I hadn't listened to the CD. Right? Does anyone know where this is going? And so he goes, his name was Jeff, he, go, he said, hey, Pete, how's that CD going, right? So what am I doing, right? Self-deceit mechanism, I haven't listened to it, I don't want to be open and honest about it. So I just said, yeah, yeah, no, it's going okay, all right? Without saying anything, right? And then what he said, there was this song on the CD called My Car Makes Me Sin, all right? He goes, yeah, what do you reckon about that, car, that song, My Car Makes Me Sin? I said, yeah, yeah, it's all right. All right? And what do you reckon I was doing about two days later? Fessing up to a pastor that I lied to him. All right? Because I hadn't even listened to it. But that was me. I was thinking about, I don't want to look bad, so I actually don't. It's difficult to deal with the truth. It's difficult to walk in the light. Even though it's way, way, way better, I'll lie rather than actually have to walk in the light. We lie subtly by putting ourselves in the best light by innuendo, embellishment, or careful selection of data. Yeah? You ever do that? Just, well, I didn't lie. I'm just going to pick all the stuff that slides in my direction. And what about this one? We think highly of our own opinions on every issue. This is not always going to be everyone, every single one of these, but that happens too, isn't it? And it's like, if I think my opinion's right all the time, then I don't have to deal with the stuff that cuts across me. We tie up our own identity in certain grandiose roles. Well, I'm a counsellor, or I'm a parent, I'm a pastor, all right? Or maybe I'm a doctor, maybe I'm a musician, this is what I do. And all of a sudden, because I am someone and I think that person's really reputable, I don't have to deal with any messiness. What about this one? We pray for help before performing a certain responsibility and then we rehearse our own success afterwards without even thinking about God. That's a self-deceit mechanism. Nietzsche said this, he was a uh, philosopher from a little while ago, he said, this, this is what he said, I did that, says my memory, I could not have done that, says my pride, and remains inexorable, which means unstoppable. He says, eventually the memory yields. Isn't that true? I did that, says my memory, I could not have done that, says my pride, and remains inexorable, eventually the memory yields. Well, at this point, kind of thinking, man, what happened to all these nice messages from the project? All right? You're probably feeling a little bit like T.S. Eliot wrote, humankind cannot bear very much reality. Isn't that true? I mean, that's why we do the self-deceit thing, because it's hard. It's actually hard to face the truth about ourselves. So what does the writer of Hebrews say? How, 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 do, we, how do we get freed from this, uh, this, this deception, this self-deception? Well, he's very, very clear about it. He actually says the remedy is community. It's people speaking the truth to each other. I remember talking to a friend of mine a couple of months ago, and uh, we were talking about someone who'd gone to a, uh, a non-Christian funeral. Um, and the, uh, the family of the, the person that had died made it clear that uh, they weren't a Christian and they didn't want to have any references to God. And... Um, so they got to the funeral, but you know what happened? Everyone started talking about God, and they started talking about heaven. Oh, he's having a good time up there. He didn't want to have anything to do with God at all. 
It was an interesting conversation I had with my friend where, they, uh, where I said, really? Are you, are you just going to, as a Christian, can you just stand there and just go along with that? And say, yeah, he's in heaven, yeah, everything's sweet, when it's not? It's almost like an enabling of self-deception. And you know what this person said to me? They said, well, you've got to say whatever you have to say to make them feel better. I just kind of thought, well, come on, well, it's, um, don't get me wrong. Don't go out there and start visiting funerals and saying, look, they're going to burn, right? And they're kindling, all right? That's not going to be helpful, right? But I think it's massively unhelpful to make someone feel safe and good about something where there is no safety. That's just, I mean... Is it difficult to find what to say in a non-Christian funeral context? Absolutely, and I'm not saying it's easy. But it doesn't help to be an enabler of self-deception. I mean, when a Christian stands there and says, it's okay, they're in heaven, even though they didn't want anything to do with God, that puts everyone else in a safe place and they think it's going to be okay in the end. And we know biblically it's not going to be okay in the end. And so loving that person is not going to be enabling their self-deception, it's actually going to be speaking the truth to them. You see, the truth was, we did this in biblical counselling, is that all of us needed each other before sin even came into the world. God created you dependent upon each other. That's, that is the default setting. And you need other people to speak into you and to help you before sin even came in. How much more now? Paul Tripp says this, If there had been no fall, if we had never sinned, we would still need help because we're human. I need to wake up in the morning and say, God, I'm a person in desperate need of help. Please send help as my way and give me the humility to receive the help that you've provided. You see, and, and as sin comes in, the deceitful nature of sin comes in, you, need, you and I need help even more now because we have a tendency not to look at the truth. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says in verse 13. He says, But exhort one another, strongly encourage one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's what you need to do. That's what we need to do. And I think it happens, but it probably needs to happen more. If you look at this scripture here, it's clear that the writer of Hebrews is saying this needs to be a daily thing. To stop you from becoming deceived and getting hardened, it needs to be a daily thing. And I think, you know, I referred to uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 4 to 5. I reckon we can make this our log and spec thing work in our favour, can't we? If we're in community. I mean, what Jesus is saying is that you're really, really good at seeing other people's stuff, but not your own. So get in a community with people that see your other stuff really clearly, but love you. Because in this context, Jesus is saying the person who's got the log in their eye is judgmental. Get in a community where people love you, can see your stuff really clearly and they can help you to, to move into the light and to move into the truth. The writer of Hebrews uh, mentions this again in uh, chapter 10 where he says this, Let us consider how to stir one another, stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day of Jesus coming back, drawing more. That would be a good meditation, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be a... Isn't it a, an, an incredibly inspiring thought to think we could all be sitting around in a uh, shady place drinking some cold water for five minutes once a week thinking about how you could, you could stir someone up? 
How, how could I actually speak into someone so that they see the truth and they move into the truth and God redeems them from the junk that's hurting them? How can I help someone? Yeah, I saw Peter the other day and he made an excuse and I think there's something going on that he doesn't want to face up to. So maybe you take five minutes aside and the guy who's supposed to know everything probably in the church, you pray for him and you go, I think he's not looking at something he needs to look at. And so you pray for him and then you might send a text or something. You see, Hebrews is, uh, the writer of Hebrews is saying it needs to be a daily thing. Now, the big question that might be popping up in, in your minds is, well, we're really busy. So how do you make it a daily thing? And I'm going to address that a little bit later. But before I do, I'm going to show you a clip from uh, 60 Minutes. And uh, this is a clip about Michael Jackson. This is amazing, all right? This is kind of like some kind of publicist, doesn't even know it, but he's teaching you about Hebrews 3. All right, here we go. It was a strange life, an even stranger death. Michael Jackson was a mass of contradictions. Charismatic, hugely talented, eccentric, and downright weird. He was a blazing success and a tragic failure, an aging Peter Pan who refused to grow up. And now he's gone. But the public fascination lives on, and once again, Michael Jackson is the biggest celebrity on earth. Here's Liz Hayes from the Jackson Mansion in Los Angeles. Michael Jackson was the undisputed king of pop. When you sell 750 million albums and set just about every musical record there is to set, you answer to no one. And according to Levine, nobody in Jackson's life dared tell him the truth. What should happen is if you walk into uh neighbor's house and you say something stupid your friend or family is supposed to say hey uh, what, what what did you just say that's a very stupid thing he shouldn't be saying that he had no family or friends well the question is not whether he had family or friends the question is whether they were not on or off his payroll and had the capacity to tell somebody the truth over the next two decades Jackson became a human headline. How do you feel when they call you? Wacko yeah, Wacko Jacko. Where'd that come from? Wacko. Some English tabloid. I have a heart and I have feelings. I feel that when you do that to me. It's not nice. Don't do it. I'm not a wacko. He'd lost touch with reality. Well, I think that a lot of mega celebrities do. Mega celebrities come to believe often that uh, they can control gravity. But the truth is, is that if you go out into your backyard, you pick up a big rock, you throw it into the air, no matter how loud you scream, I don't believe in gravity, gravity doesn't really give a r you believe. Isn't that, I mean, that's, that's a bit tragic, really, isn't it? I mean, Michael Jackson gets into this wacky place the last 10, 20 years of his life and a, some kind of publicist there is just saying he just needed someone that would speak the truth to him and pretty much he only got people around him that were on his payroll that would tell him what he wanted to hear. See, the 
the writer of Hebrews is saying that could be you. It could be. He's not saying it is. He's just giving you a warning. He's saying it could be you. All right? So be careful. So you need to make sure that you get yourself in a place that's going to protect against that. So what sort of structures do we have at the project that uh, help people not to be deceived? Well, this is the first one. You've heard about this lots of times with community groups. are really important. You need to be in biblical community. All right? You don't have to be in one of our community groups, but you should be able to do an inventory of your own life right now and you should be able to work out, here are maybe the four or five people in my life that speak truth to me. And they're not... I haven't selected them so they say what I want. I've selected them because I know they speak the truth to me. If you don't have four or five people in your life that speak the truth to you, um, you're in a dangerous place. All right? Now, you might have a wife or a husband that speaks the truth to you, but I think you need more than that. And I think the Bible's very clear about the fact that you need more. They're going to be a, a, a clearly a, a vehicle of truth for you. If the marriage is operating well, they'll be a vehicle of truth for you, but you need more than just one. Who speaks the truth to you? Community groups at the project here are this uh, one-stop shop where you can actually be in a place where we talk about the truth. I mean, today, you know, one of the things on the discussion sheet for our group for today is out of all of those things, those mechanisms, street-level mechanisms that we use to deceive ourselves, which ones do we trip up on? All right? And so today, we're just going to sit there and we're just going to talk about that and we're just going to be honest with each other about the stuff that we kind of fall into and that gives an opportunity then for people to speak into each other and encourage each other strongly, not just today, but over the next month, all right? And maybe it means that in about two weeks' time we might be talking to someone else in our community group and they use one of these self-deceit kind of mechanisms in their life and it rings a bell in our head. I remember you saying that you do that and we can really gently and encouragingly just say, hey, listen, man, is there, is there something going on there that you just don't want to look at? Is there something messy? Is everything okay? And they might go, yeah, it's all fine, and it might be fine. But they might also go, ah, you got me. Yeah, there is something messy. And then there's another opportunity to speak encouragement, strong encouragement into uh, someone's life. We've got uh, a town community group that meets on Tuesday nights. That's led by Nathan. We've got a, a Highfields youth community group that's led by Diff on Wednesday nights. We've got a, uh, another community group that meets on Wednesday nights. It's led by uh, Richard and Helen Schwartz, who are doing Kids Church today, and Nick and Fiona Crowther that meets on Wednesday nights also. Then there's Sunday lunch um, community group at our place. Honestly, the, the risk is huge, according to the writer of Hebrews, so you've just got to find a way to make it work. Now, I do understand when you've had, when you've had new babies and, and when life kind of just gets turned upside down, but... Seriously, I mean, it's, it's difficult when you've got kids and it's pretty chaotic across the road there in 22 Cook Court for lunch, all right, because kids are going nuts a lot of the time, all right, and often parents are out trying to settle the kids down and maybe stop the bleeding, all right, sometimes. But the truth is, if you say, I'm going to wait until my kids are old enough to be part of something like that, 10 years is a lot of time to get deceived, isn't it? I mean, it can take half a day to get deceived. It can take 10 minutes to get deceived. 10 years is a long time. So I kind of look at a lot of stuff in the Bible and you look at it and you go, well, that's really difficult to do with kids. So you don't just say, that's really difficult, so we're not going to do it. You look at it and you go, okay, the Bible says, God says, for my own protection and for my own help, this is what you need to do, Peter. So I've just got to work out how to do it. Now, how to do it's my job. 
God's call is clear. I've just got to work out how to do it. So I want to encourage you, and I think there's a very, very strong encouragement from the writer of Hebrews that if you aren't in biblical community at the moment, you've got to work out how to do it. You need to be in it and you need to have other people speaking into your life. Diff uh, preached a little while ago about discipleship. All right? Discipleship is taking community group down to two, maybe three. And it's almost like that's kind of drinking straight out of the cordial jug, right? Straight out of the bottle. That's what it is, right? You kind of you sit down together, you talk about stuff. We've been encouraging people to read the Disciple Book by Bill Clem to go through it together and to talk about the Lord together and just get a really, really concentrated form, get the truth from Bill Clem, get the truth from the other person and walk in the light and be in a really fruitful, open, spacious place rather than boxed in a dark corner of deceit and not wanting to look at stuff. So I'd ask you this morning, how are you doing with setting up some kind of discipleship or mentoring relationship with someone? We Diff talked about how... I think the ideal is that you'd have one up and you'd have one down. You'd be contributing to someone predominantly because it always goes both ways, but you'd be contributing to someone, but then someone would be contributing to you. How are you going with that? Because at the end of the day, I think most of the momentum actually needs to come from the person who's getting the contribution, not the person who's giving it. How are you going? Have you got a discipleship structure set up? And the last thing I want to throw in, and then I'm done, is we have a very, very exciting thing that's just happened in the last 24 hours. I've been uh, negotiating with uh, this organisation in America for about the last six weeks just to have a five-minute phone call. And then yesterday I had the five-minute phone call and found out on the phone call I didn't need to have the phone call. So that's a pretty exciting moment for me. But anyway, this uh, software programmer at um, Mars Hill Church, Mark Driscoll's church, wrote something called The City, some software called The City, and some of you may have heard of it before, but basically what it is, is it's, a, it's Facebook for a church. All right? That's what it is. So it's social networking for a church. And uh, so if you're kind of someone who's, uh, you keep your guns loaded at night because you think that you're going to get a stalker if you go on Facebook, it's all really safe. All right? And you end up with uh, moderators in the city. Um, so you end up with community groups and you can have private kind of groups where your community group can communicate with each other all the time during the week. There's no app for it yet, but there's a mobile version for mobile browsers, so it'll look like an app if you're into that sort of stuff. All right, and you can do it. You can post your status updates. You can do all that sort of stuff, and it's just going to be a really, really good way of connecting because we understand at the project here that it's difficult and everyone's really busy, and so we need to maximise technology to connect people. All right. So what's happening is uh, the project is paying for and, uh, well, it's at least going to go for three months. All right? We've, uh, we'll probably have it uh, ready to roll out theoretically. It'll be ready to go for us by about Tuesday of this week. All right? But the problem is three of us need to learn how to use the, the sucker before we roll it out. All right? So we're going to... We're going to work that out and then we'll have a time where we're going to teach you how to use it because we would love to see Hebrews 3 happening through the city, all right? And it means that all of you can kind of uh, sign up to it if you want to sign up to it and we can all stay really, really well connected. Um, Outside of that, I don't know that much more about it, all right? But uh, the guy told me yesterday, within the five-minute period we were talking, that... uh, they're having 60 churches a month sign up to it at the moment. 
all right? And I think, honestly, I think this is probably the direction that we need to move in terms of getting more connected. You can do it on Facebook, but every man and his dog sees what you put on Facebook, and you can get some really messy stuff on Facebook too. So uh, this provides a safer, secure kind of environment that uh, will enable us to genuinely encourage and speak into each other on a regular basis. All right? And that is our heart of the project, that we provide everything that we possibly can to help this to happen, and we just invite you to join us in it. So we invite you to join our community groups. We invite you to come to church every Sunday. We would love you to come to church every Sunday. That's one of the things we thought from the start. We just want people to get it in their heads, just be at church every Sunday. Come every Sunday. Come to a community group, and then maybe some discipleship, discipleship community group church, and the rest of the time... Go out and love other people and be part of God's plan to redeem other people and to redeem our whole culture. Does that sound good? And don't walk in the dark. Don't walk in deceit. Don't find a nice little nook and cranny in the corner and hide in there. Just be open about it. Find a safe place you can be open about it. Let God change you. Let God make you happier, more joyful. Let him give you a joy and a happiness underneath that you can't shake and no one else can shake. I'm going to pray for him. God, you've got amazing, amazing plans for us. But they're so much different than what we think they are. We have very narrow ideas about, a lot of the time, about what we want you to do. And you're just doing something way better than that. And it will look way different. We tend to like the flashy, sipping lemonade somewhere on a beach ideas. And you're just going, really? Is that all you want? You're just going to do something far, far, far greater than that. And you're changing us. You're drawing us out of darkness. You're redeeming us. You're fixing us up. You're stopping us self-harmers from hurting ourselves the stuff that we do. So God, I pray that you continue to do that, God. And I do pray for everyone here and the people who aren't here who normally come to the project. I pray, Lord, that there'd be a greater buy-in to, to church, to, to community, to discipleship, Lord. Not because any of the leadership need any kind of kudos from it, but because we need it. We need to be in places where you can speak to us, where other people can strongly encourage us and exhort us in the truth. God, I pray that as you uncover the reality about us, that we'd remember our identity in you, that we're your kids, that we've been purified. And there's no threat. There is no threat to looking at the areas that we, that we struggle. There's no shame anymore because you bore our shame. You took our shame away and you covered us. And even if we were to do the most evil, disgusting thing, even if we got deceived to the point where we did something evil and disgusting, your grace, your goodness, your forgiveness, your mercy would always do better. It would always be stronger. It would always be a higher concentration than the failures that we have. And so, God, thank you for that liberty that that frees us to look at ourselves we don't have to do what Freud says. We can look at ourselves when it gets messy and it's going to be okay because we're still your kid. We're still purified by your justification on the cross.
And there's hope everywhere. There's hope everywhere because your Holy Spirit lives in us and will change us. So God, I pray that the project as a whole, the project, not the individuals, Lord, but everyone in the project would change. That, that this church would walk in the light more. That we'd all grow. That we'd all grow in connection to each other and connection with you. And that we'd be cleaner in our hearts. And that your impulse that you put in our hearts, that drive toward you, that new heart, would not get deceived. It would be deceived less and less. And God, we'd be really fruitful people with those that don't know you and with each other. God, I pray by your Holy Spirit. God, Holy Spirit, I just ask right now that you just fill this church. I pray that you just fill this church, Lord, and I pray, Holy Spirit, that you fill every single person here that loves you and that they would be being filled by you so that you would be able to lead them and teach them about how they need to exhort and encourage each other. And God, I pray for this week that we wouldn't be a church that denies the leadings and the directions that we think maybe might be you. And that God, if there's been anyone who's had maybe an impulse or a leading from you to speak into someone else's life and they haven't done it, I pray God that you just forgive them, that you just clean them and you renew them and put them in a place where they'll just follow you. And maybe it means a text message, maybe it means when the city gets up and maybe it means an email or a Facebook inbox. God, that there'd be moments this week that we would sit for five minutes and consider how we can stir someone else up to love and good deeds. We'd consider how we could encourage someone else so that they don't get caught by the deceitfulness of sin. God, please help us to do that. And as you help us with that, Holy Spirit, I thank you that we become a vibrant, pulsating community and a powerful community. Because you always said, Jesus, that uh, we'd be known by our love for each other. So I pray, Holy Spirit, build love between us. Make it stronger. Let that be the taste that people get who come to the project for the first time, that these people really love each other and they love new people. God, thank you that you've been building that into us, but I pray that you would increase the concentration of that amongst us, that we would be really, really loving and we'd shepherd each other. Jesus, thank you that you're the good shepherd and that you laid down your life for the sheep and that means that we can now be your under-shepherds and we can help each other. Amen.